0: And I want us to think a bit today about that very familiar reading that we use. I want us to dig into it a little bit and unpack it a little bit. Excuse me. I think it has things to say to us. But I'm very, very mindful of the context in which we are right now, which is we're a few days away from an election. And uh, I would like us to spend some time uh, this morning praying for our nation together. And uh, we'll have an opportunity to do that too. So that's where I think we're going to go. Um, but Spirit could just take it in a very different direction and that's absolutely fine, isn't it? Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 9. Turn on your Bibles or open them up and let's have a look at Isaiah chapter 9 together. We're going to read the first seven verses which are really familiar. If you've been to any kind of lessons and carols or a nativity at a children's school perhaps where they've read some Bible readings you will have heard these words before, uh, words from the prophet Isaiah. So writing hundreds of years before Jesus, at a time when Israel is quickly falling away from God and is about to go into a season of exile. And so this prophet is writing to a nation in trouble, a nation in need of God's intervention. And in the midst of the trouble and the difficulty, In the midst of enemies that are facing them, seeking to oppress them, Isaiah is going to speak these words. And when God disciplined the nation of Israel, there were like these cycles of discipline that would come upon them, as God sought to kind of get their attention and get them back on track. God's intention (coughs) for Israel was always that they would be a people who would be his special people, so that he would demonstrate to the whole world what it would look like to live in relationship with him by having a special relationship with this people. In fact, if you later on, I've probably said this before, but if you want to just do a search on the phrase, I will be their God and they will be my people, or variations of that, you'll see that it's peppered all the way through the scripture, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. It's there and it appears lots of times in the Prophets. It is kind of the story of God saying, will you belong to me and will you let me be your God? That's the story of God, is that he created us to live in union with him and to walk closely with him. In sin and rebellion, we fall away and we live these independent lives seeking to live without him. And the story of God is a story of a God who's reaching out saying, will you be my people and let me be your God in an exclusive way? Not serving anyone else, not chasing after anyone else, not trusting in anyone else for the future, not worshipping and giving what should only belongs to me to anybody else is what God is saying. And God had chosen this people Israel to demonstrate to the whole world, not so that it would only be Israel, but that others would see and they would come. Which is why there's that other refrain that happens many, many times. The nations will come and gather at your light. Or the nation, you will be a light to the nations. You will be a beacon. Those kind of words. This idea that Israel would demonstrate to the world, this is what it looks like to live in relationship with God. That would be an attractive thing and the nations would come. That was God's plan. But Israel had this problem, or lots of problems. And when they kind of got comfortable and settled, they would start to... Uh, be very comfortable in their position of wealth and power and authority and influence and they would oppress people around them. And so people would come from other nations on those borders and remember God's intention was that, that Israel would have these kind of porous borders that people would see what it looks like to live in relationship with God and they too would come and join They too would be part of that. And so God's kingdom would then grow through the whole world as people saw what it was like to live in relationship with God. But instead of kind of living in that openness and that grace and that generosity and inviting people into that place of living with God, what Israel did instead was it began to oppress its neighbours. And it treated its neighbours just as it had been treated. And so as Israel had been an enslaved nation, it begins to enslave nations around it. While it had been mistreated by other nations and oppressed militarily, it starts to do the same to other nations around it. And so what would happen as they begin to fall away, and of course the other huge issue for Israel, is that God had wanted them to exclusively worship him, and just to have the one God, the one true God, they would take a look around and say, well that farmer over there and our bordering nation, his fields seem to be being very, very fruitful. And I noticed that he worships Baal. Maybe if we worship Baal as well as the one true God, we'll get a bit of that kind of fertility in our land. Those fields that have ashterah poles in them, they seem to be quite fertile. Let's set up some ashterah poles. And so not only were they behaving in a despicable way and treating poorer nations badly, and when people came, instead of embracing them and helping them to become part of Israel, they treated them like slaves and servants... They also began to look at these other false gods and began worshipping them. And so God brings his discipline in and he raises up prophetic voices that call people back and say, look, you're heading in the wrong direction, come back to God. And these prophetic voices rise up and often what happens sadly is that the people of Israel don't like that prophetic voice so they kill them. Paul in the New Testament says, I would love for you all to prophesy. Just think twice about that before you... People have a history of killing prophets. There'd be these cycles then. He'd raise up the prophetic voice, then other things would start to happen. The crops would begin to fail, and people would get hungry. The money wouldn't go as far. There wouldn't be as many offspring of the sheep and the goats that they were keeping. And if that didn't kind of get their attention and they'd come back, well then there'd be a few kind of military defeats, and there will be skirmishes on the border, that normally Israel would have kind of gone into and they'd have have won those battles and the battles turn against them. And God is always saying, come on, come on, come on, I want to get your attention. Come back to me. Because when the people of Israel are living in good relationship with God, there is military victory, there is fruitfulness. And so one of the signs to these people that they're going the wrong way is that these things start to turn against them. And eventually what happens is that Uh, If they don't listen to God, the cycles of discipline increase and not only do they start losing a few of the battles on the edges but nations rise up beside them that seek to oppress them and God uses them as a means of discipline. And then eventually, the ultimate cycle of discipline is that the symbol and the sign that they're living with God which is this land that he's put them on God takes them away from it divorces them from the land of promise separates them from the very thing that gives them meaning and purpose. And Israel's in one of those cycles as we read these stories. It's in one of those cycles where it's coming into that place of God's judgement coming upon them. And we know that ultimately in Isaiah's lifetime what's going to happen is that the nation of Israel is going to be taken off as captive and separated from the land. Why? because it's running after false gods, because it's oppressing its neighbours and it's not living in this exclusive relationship with God that demonstrates to the nations what it is to live in God's blessing. So God's discipline is going to come against them. And so to a nation that is in a time of difficulty, to a nation that is in this moment of God's discipline and coming against it, and I don't want you to read too much into that, I am not saying we're a nation that's experiencing God's discipline, although we might be, uh, I am thinking we're a nation and in some difficulty and whatever happens after Thursday, we the people of God have to be right in the centre of rebuilding our nation because we're a divided people right now. God speaks and he speaks through the prophet. And like many prophetic words, there's this wonderful dynamic that happens with the prophetic. There is a prophetic word that's given that has an immediate meaning for the people who hear it first. Those very first hearers of the prophetic word, it's God speaking directly to them. When we read passages like this, we must refrain from thinking God's original intention was to write to us in 2019 to give us some encouragement and hope. That's the problem lots of people fall into, to revelation, that they think, you know, there will come a time when it will all make sense and it was written for that time. But no, when this prophetic word was given, it was given in that moment, as a word in that moment. But here's the wonderful thing about the prophetic. It's also looking forwards, and it's saying there will come a time when this thing happens. And because our history and our, our human story kind of goes in cycles, often with a prophetic word, there's a sense in which it is spoken, it has an immediate meaning and purpose. It's going to have some future purpose, but it also may have a future purpose after that. And so we have these prophetic words, for example, about Jesus, which in that moment that they're spoken, they give encouragement to the people in the midst of struggle and in their situation. The prophetic word comes and it enables them to lift their vision higher than the rubbish going on around them and hope comes into their heart. The prophetic word, which has the life of God about it, causes life to flow into his people. It has its first and its immediate impact. And then there's prophetic words about Jesus. Jesus comes and he fulfills so much of that prophetic stuff. But then there's another layer in which it's not yet fully fulfilled. So God comes, as we spoke about last week, and brings his kingdom with him. But the fulfillment of his kingdom will come when he comes again. God comes and in Jesus reveals the healing power of the kingdom which we will know fully when we're with him. So these prophetic words come, and they have an immediate relevance, perhaps an immediate impact and direction and and, and guidance, but then there's some future element to this as well, and perhaps again, an even more future element. And when we get to Isaiah, that's what's happening here. So next time you see a little wonderful, delightful child... Reading from the prophet Isaiah, smiling because this is all about Jesus, realise these prophetic words had an impact on the people who heard them first. Have something to say about the time of Jesus, but have something to say about the future beyond that first appearing of Jesus too. With all of that in mind as context, 10 minutes of context, let's read from Isaiah 9. Nevertheless, There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation, and increase their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. It'll be fuel for the fire. establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So already, just with what we said about the scripture, it takes on a new meaning for you straight away, doesn't it? So when it talks here about people rejoicing in the time of harvest, you hear that echo. They've been going through a season of discipline. The harvest and the crops have been failing. Do you see it now? They've been going through a season where military defeat has been happening on their borders and a a new power is rising up to oppress them because they've been disobedient to God as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. These are things that they haven't been experiencing. This is what they've been without. This has been what has caused the, the opposite of peace. It's caused strife and difficulty. It's caused fear to come into people's hearts. That's what they've been living with. And so this prophetic word comes to a disobedient people who are under the discipline of God. And God says to them effectively, yes, there's discipline here, but there will come a time. And even though these nations, Zebulun, Naphtali, these nations rise up against you, I will defeat them once more, says God. That's an incredible word of prophecy, an incredible word of promise. Could you imagine if you're in that situation where you're living in that disobedient nation? And maybe you're somebody who's one of the disobedient ones. Maybe you've got a little bar altar inside your house. And God's been saying to you that judgment's coming. And perhaps for you there's that dawning sense that I'm not doing what I should be doing. I'm living in a life that is displeasing God and that could be the ruining of you, the end of you. That could be that sense of, "Woe am I, I'm just dead." And yet the prophet speaks and says, "There'll come a day when we'll make it right." Or maybe, maybe you could be one of those people, if you put yourself back in that situation, who's trying to live right? Who's worshiping the one true God? who does away with idols and focuses, and yet still, because of the nation where you are and the people around you, you live with the effect of other people's sins. Your crops have failed because there's a national identity to what's going on. Your sons have been losing battles and have died, not because you've been disobedient, but because you're part of a nation that is turning its back on the one true God. This corporate identity of the people of Israel has brought about the judgment of God. And even good people are living with the consequence of bad people's decisions. And in the midst of that moment, God says, there's a time coming when this darkness, this profound darkness, this depth of darkness that you find yourselves in, I'm going to come and bring a light in the midst of that darkness. Somebody say hallelujah. Isn't that incredible? That in the midst of that time when we feel like we know we've done stuff and we've messed up, and so we're fearful of God, but even in the midst of those times we think, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing, but because I'm human, because I live in this country, because of what's going on around me, I'm experiencing the kind of consequence of living amongst the fallen people. We're not covered from it. We're not covered in Teflon the moment we become Christians. Other people's rubbish lands in our backyard. But to all the people walking in darkness, God says, there's a great light coming. There'll come a day when they'll see the great light. The prophet says, God, you will enlarge the nation again. How do you think the nation gets enlarged? The nation of Israel gets enlarged when people come and find the one true God and follow him. It is not about territorial gains and the military moving the borders because the people of Israel and the nation of Israel, yes, has a land element to it in the Old Testament but we understand that the people and the nation of Israel goes beyond one ethnic group and one geographical location because it includes people who live on the borders who choose to follow the one true God the nation gets enlarged as people see God's work respond to him and come and follow him so even in the midst of a time of difficulty in the nation for those of us who perhaps identify that we've turned a bit from God and we're doing stuff we shouldn't do or those of us who say we're seeking to be faithful but we're still living in this nation and living with the consequences of that God's word speaks again there is a light that will come And so in Jesus, that light steps onto the human stage and reveals to a people who are absolutely, in that moment, under oppression, under the wicked, violent, vicious, evil heel of the Roman oppressors. Let me be absolutely clear. The Roman Empire is that same spirit that was behind the Babylonian Empire, this demonic spirit that seeks to rule the world through the use of coercive violence and through the use of uh, false faith and twisting what is genuine truth. There's two things that the enemy constantly uses to try and push down God's people and to build an alternative kingdom. And so at the time of Jesus, he steps on, they're absolutely there, and that, that spirit that was behind Babylon, the spirit that's behind the Roman Empire, the spirit that's behind the Vikings, the Nazis, the secular communists, The British Empire that seeks to use force and violence and twists truth to build a kingdom. That spiritual dynamic was at play in the time of Jesus. The people of Israel are not rulers in their own land. They seem far away from the promise of God. And it seems to have been 400 years since a prophet has spoken. And into that moment steps Jesus. Into that moment comes light, into that moment comes this one who is described here as the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. And at Christmas we declare that a child is born, a child is coming. And it is going to be as good as the day of Midian's defeat. How many of you know when Midian got defeated? What this is referring to here? You're going to hear it read if you go to all kinds of services. Which is the defeat they're talking about here? Anybody? So tell me what you know about Gideon. Gideon, those of you who are fast-paced will know the answer to this question because of what I've just said. Gideon faced an army and the army were the Midians. Well done. (laughs) You're with me. It's good. They were the Midians. And so this Midian army that's seeking to oppress the people of Israel... Gideon is raised up by God. Go on, somebody can just show off for just a moment. In fact, I'll be so impressed if you get the number straight away, you'll have a candy cane from the tree. With how many soldiers did Gideon defeat a huge army, multiple tens of thousands of of Midianites? How many? Not 500. 300? You're getting closer with three. Somewhere between three and five. I'm going to listen out. If I hear the number in the next five seconds. 350. I get that later. Okay, it's unfair. How many weapons did they use? None! None. There we go. (laughs) None. No weapons. 350 of them coming down the hill toward the Midian camp. They're carrying, what are they carrying in their hands? Jars of clay and inside the jars of clay there is torches, some of them have got trumpets and so they come down the hill they blow the trumpets they smash these jars so that the flame becomes obvious that they're there God moves, confusion comes who kills the Midianites? the Midianites kill the Midianites they turn against each other Israel's not lifted up a sword. Gideon hasn't had to cause uh, anybody to get into a violent activity. In fact, God has done something that has wiped out the enemy without the Israeli soldiers needing to cast a blow. And the picture here is that God's kingdom is going to come not by God's people using that same violence that has been used against them, but by the move of God that comes and reveals his kingdom and does something in a miraculous way. Friends, any victory that we have by fighting the world's way is probably not a victory that the kingdom wanted us to have. When people oppress us and they're horrible to us, if we're just horrible in return so that we win, we've lost. We've lost. And so the prophet says, look, it's going to be like that day of Midian. God's going to turn the whole thing on its head. And those who come with violence and threat and enmity, God's going to do something and all you have to do is show that you trust in him. Show the world what it looks like to live in relationship with God and then the nation will grow and the people will come and follow you. Then the harvest will be good again. Then it will be like you'll be divided in that plunder, but you never had to go to war because the Lord went to war for you. That's the prophetic word that God gives to these people. And in Jesus we see the start of that. We know the fulfilment comes when he comes again. But in Jesus we see the start of that. We see the one who comes and today I want us to think for the last couple of minutes about him being, I have to duck because there's a clock up there just in case you're wondering what I'm doing when I do that. What's he looking at? There's a clock up there and the candelabra which are gorgeous just get in the way and I can't see it. He's the Prince of Peace. And friends, we need to know peace. We need to know peace, first of all, between us and God. His, dest- his desire for us and our destiny as human beings was to live in relationship with him. But because every single one of us was born in rebellion, we all were, we can argue about it later, it's just a reality though. We'll fall out over the mechanics if you like, but just accept it as a reality right now, we were all born in rebellion to God. And something needs to happen for us to be at peace with God. That word peace is this word shalom. And this word shalom doesn't just mean the absence of struggling and the absence of fisticuffs and violence. It means the very presence of hope, the very presence of understanding, of good relationship, of rest. Shalom is like a state of being where we're at peace with the world not just that we're not fighting anymore. That's the difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. A peacekeeper stands there saying, stop. But a peacemaker says, now let's figure out what that was about. And let's see how we can live together in a different way. And the, the peace that is spoken about here is this shalom. And so we need to have peace with God. Not just that we stop shaking our fist in his face. And not just that we stop fearing whatever discipline he might bring into our lives. But we need to find that place of shalom with God. Where we who were warring with him find that we can have union with him and share a destiny and a story that takes us into a different future. We need peace in our personal lives. I don't know what your network is. I use this phrase, you've perhaps heard me use it. Friends, relatives, associates, neighbours. Fran networks. That's a great word, Fran. I don't know what your Fran network is like. How much peace there is with your friends and their friends, your relatives, your associates, the people that you work with and spend time with, your nine to five folks, and your neighbours, the folks you live on the street with. But we need to find peace in those networks for all sorts of reasons. We fall out, we have divisions, bitterness comes. And sometimes we can live in this kind of false peace which is, well, you know, we've stopped fighting. We don't talk anymore, we don't look at each other, we cross the road to avoid each other, but we stop stopped fighting. Well, that's, that's a nice step, but it's not peace. God wants us to have peace with him. God wants us to live in peace in our friend networks. But also God wants us to live at peace as a nation and amongst nations. And those are the dimensions, at least three, we can maybe have a conversation about the others later, that Jesus comes into the world to bring. And look at how Isaiah says that comes about and what it looks like. What are the characteristics of that kingdom? How can it be? That we get that peace with God, that peace with our friends, relatives, associates and neighbours. How can there possibly be peace between nations and in a nation? The secret to that is in verse 7. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. That sounds good to me. I'd like Jesus' peace to come and have no end. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. Establishing and upholding it with, say it with me, these two things. With justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness. Justice demands that because of our rebellion against God, there's a price to be paid. Paul phrases it this way. We've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Elsewhere, he says, there is something that comes our way because of our rebellion to God, and that is a death, an end. We're separated from the source of life. And justice says, something's got to happen about that. There's a punishment that needs to be paid. And Jesus, when he comes into the world, dies on the cross. And he takes that punishment upon himself. But that isn't the end of the story. Because Jesus' kingdom is about justice and righteousness. If it were just justice, then the story of Jesus finishes on the cross. Because he's paid the price. But his kingdom is about righteousness. It's about going beyond that moment and the act of justice and making the way of righteousness for everything to be right and proper and good again. To restore, restore good relationships. So Jesus dies on the cross, but three days later he raises again. Hallelujah. And then a few days later after that, 40 days later, he raises up again and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And there he does a number of things. One of the things that he does is he pours out the Holy Spirit upon us. And so on the cross he makes the way of justice possible, but then what happens afterwards, he makes righteousness possible. We don't have to carry on living in that rebellion to God. We can live in a different way as God's power works in us to make us live a righteous life. The good life. The life that God intended. When Jesus died on the cross, not only was he paying the penalty for the wrong things you've done, but take your eyes off yourself for a minute, he took the penalty for the wrong things that the people around you have done to you as well things that your friends, relatives, associates and neighbours did to you that hurt you. Those words, those things that they stole, the things that they did. And I am mindful that some people have done some horrible things to some of us. God makes for justice and righteousness. His kingdom, if it's going to come in fullness, needs for that justice to come in. The thing that Jesus died on the cross for them. The offence of that. The personal nature of that. He takes to the cross. There may be all kinds of legal consequences for some of the things that people have done to us. Which is also part of God's justice. But righteousness is possible as well. As we open to his spirit. And deal with the stuff that's in our hearts. So that it doesn't shape us anymore. And makes for a new relationship. Please do not misunderstand me. I don't believe in forgive and forget for the offences that people do against us. I believe in forgive and make right. Forgive and make right. And I believe in that for the nations too. I believe in our nation, and perhaps when we get to the ballot box on Thursday, we should be asking ourselves the questions, if Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom where justice and righteousness prevail, how can I use my vote on Thursday to make sure that that reflects something of God's kingdom? I want to heartily encourage you all to vote, but I won't tell you who to vote for. What I will tell you is this. If you vote for a racist, Jesus will be really disappointed in you. You need to go into that ballot box. I want to encourage you to go. I want to encourage you to go because it's really important. Uh, On our ballot paper, I don't think we have any extreme racist parties, which is really good. We've lived in constituencies where that has happened, and we've had to say you need to go and vote because all the extremists will vote. Thankfully, I don't think we have. Has anybody seen the whole ballot paper? Have we got any extremists? No. That was really well behaved of some of you who might have wanted to name one of the mainstream candidates as an extremist. You were so well behaved in that moment. If you really wanted to and then held yourself back, come and see me later, I'll give you a candy cane. That was really good. But you see, on Thursday we have the chance to say, which of these candidates do I think, or which party's manifesto do I think, is going to lead to justice and righteousness in our nation and between the nations? That's a good rule of thumb. I know many people are really struggling you might take a look at all kinds of personalities in this thing and think whatever thoughts you might have about the personalities involved. I'd encourage you to take a look at the manifestos and say, what do I think will lead to the kind of kingdom that Jesus is wanting to build becoming more likely in the nation and in the nations? It means that we as Christians, living in the UK right now, cannot ignore our past. You see, justice says some of the things that we've done in the past that have been oppressive need to be repented of and need to be made right for. And we cannot claim to be a righteous nation while we have outstanding debts around the globe where we have taken the wealth of whole nations for generations and then left them in poverty afterwards. I'll get political because it's not party political, you see. Jonathan, that sounds like a call for reparations for the British Empire. It does, doesn't it? It really does. Because God's kingdom is about justice and about righteousness. And Jesus coming into the world as a light reveals to us the way that God wants to build. And hallelujah, when Jesus is doing the building, We don't need military stuff anymore. We, his people, don't take up arms. We, his people, can go and collect those boots from the soldiers and throw them in the fire. Seems like a waste of boots, but anyway, I'm sure the fire will be nice and warm. We, God's people, instead, live in that place with him where we demonstrate to the world what it is to know him and walk closely to him and invite others into that space. It's exactly because Jesus is building a kingdom of justice and righteousness that people like Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. refused to resort to violence, even when horrific violence was being perpetrated against them. Why? Because they knew that the kind of victory that Jesus is going to bring is the kind of victory that Gideon had in Midian, where God reveals what only God can reveal. Even if that means that oppressors turn upon one another and destroy each other, Which isn't what we want to see happen, but what we do want to see is God's kingdom of justice and righteousness coming into the world. So friends, he's the Prince of Peace. Not the God of preemptive war. Not the God of military coercion. Not the God of just make nice and put a good face on everything. But the God who makes real peace. The God who brings shalom. Shalom into our relationship with Heavenly Father. Shalom into our relationships with one another. Shalom into our nation and between the nations. Only when we work to see his justice and his righteousness fully outworked among us. On the cross we see justice, but because the spirit is poured out on us, righteousness becomes a possibility. Because he's praying for us at the right hand of the Father, we get to be the answer to the prayers he's praying as we walk in obedience with him, showing the whole world what it means and what it looks like to live in relationship with him so that the nation increases as others gather to the light that we are reflecting to the world. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that this is not something we can do on our own. (laughs) That it's impossible for us to do it, which is why we so desperately need you. Well, thank you. The prophet reminds us that you will accomplish this by your zeal. It isn't human zeal that builds the kingdom, but it's your zeal. It is your passion. It is your power that sees your kingdom of justice and righteousness, your kingdom full of your peace made real here on earth. And Lord, it doesn't rest in chariots and horses, it doesn't rest in political parties but it rests in the spirit of God at work among his people. Our trust is in the power of the Lord, not in the power of politics or in the power of positivity, but in the power of the Lord. And Father, we pray that you would reveal your power among us. Lord, if there's any here today, for whatever reason, who are not feeling like they're fully at peace with you, Father, I pray that they'd know the reality of the justice of what you won on the cross. But also, Lord, your righteousness coming into their lives as you pour your spirit on them. Bringing freedom and hope and peace. Lord, as we are honest about those friend networks, the friends, the relatives, the associates, the neighbours that we've been struggling with those that we've lost, those that we've fallen out with, where there is no peace. God, let your justice and your righteousness come once more. Let forgiveness flow where it needs to, but let your righteousness come as relationship is restored as best as it can be. Set us free, break the yokes of our past, the things that burden us, the bars across our shoulders, even the rods of oppressors. Would you break them all so that we can live in freedom with one another? And Lord, do something in this nation that will make it a light to the nations once more, I pray. And let that light be a light of real truth, real justice, real righteousness. Friends, it would be great if we spent a little time just where we are praying for our nation on this, uh, this week, which is the eve of uh, a national election. And so I just want to encourage you where you are just to pray prayers for our nation um, and make them nice and loud so that we can say amen if you, wherever you are, if you make it nice and loud if you're at the back so that I can hear it, that would be great and then we'll all hear it and let's say amen to one another's prayers as we pray for God to move in our nation this week actually for his peace to be known among us in a time of division so let's spend some time praying for the nation before our election just as you feel the Spirit's leading you just speak out and lead us in prayer